0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome. I'm Fran Tonkis from the Cities Programme here at the LSE, and it's my pleasure to welcome you tonight to the 2009 James Sterling Memorial Lecture on the City. Uh, This is the third biennial prize to be awarded by the LSE Cities Programme in partnership with the Canadian Centre for Architecture in Montreal, and our colleague Giovanna Barassi, the Associate Director of the CCA, is here with us this evening. The James Sterling Memorial Lecture Prize was established by the two institutions in 2003 to create a forum for the advancement of new critical perspectives on the role of urban design and urban architecture in the development of cities worldwide. It was conceived, as the name suggests, in homage to the architect James Sterling, who believed that urban design is integral to the advancement of new critical perspectives on the role of urban design and urban architecture in the development of cities across the world. Uh, And saw it also as a vital topic for public debate, and it's a particular pleasure in that context to welcome Mary Sterling to be here here with us tonight. Uh, Equally, it's a great pleasure to introduce the 2008-09 winners of the Sterling Lecture Prize, Robert Mangurian and Marianne Ray. They are principals in the architectural practice Studio Works, which was founded in California in nineteen sixty-nine. Studio Works is a practice that is committed not only to high quality and inventive architectural design, but also to design education through teaching studios in California and also in Beijing. Uh, their studio base, the Beijing Architecture Studio Enterprise, was established in two thousand and five and informs some of the work we'll be hearing tonight. This relationship between research, education and practice is one uh, that the city's programme is also committed to. So it's a particular pleasure uh, to ask you to join me in welcoming Robert Mangurian and Marianne Ray to speak uh, on their topic Beijing Inside Out.
1: Thank you so much, Fran. And hello, um, you guys there. Um, yes, it's such an honor for us to be here, and we're so grateful to the um, Sterling Prize and to LSE and to CCA for, um, for supporting this work that we've been doing in Beijing now for a, a year or two.
2: Yeah, and let me say, uh, yes, uh, also thank you for uh, <coughs> having us here. Uh, the, uh, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Jimbo. Uh, was what uh, uh, James Sterling was known as uh, uh, at least for his uh, Yale students I uh, unfortunately was never a Yale student but was lucky enough to uh, <coughs> have three partners about a year out of school uh, who were also just a year out of school in New York who had studied at Yale uh, two in architecture and one in graphic design and uh, and uh, uh, James Sterling had an, an enormous influence on their lives and therefore mine Uh, so uh, uh, and I must say uh, uh, architecture as we know it today and for the sake of uh, of this talk architecture's influence in forming cities uh, would not be what it is uh, at all without uh, James Sterling existing Uh,
1: Beijing inside out um, and maybe we could start the Slides now? They said it would pop up automatically.
2: So Mary, uh, Mary and I are doing this together. So uh, Marian reads well, I read poorly, uh, uh, and I uh, like to improvise and waste time, but that's the way it goes. Uh, uh, so anyways, here we are. Beijing, uh, inside out.
1: Rural apolitan developments in early 21st century China, the, the tongue twister that we've invented there, rural apolitanism. So three days before 35 students uh, from two North American universities were arriving to spend nine weeks with us at our Beijing studio, we found ourselves without a space. Um, uh, The government had taken away our space. Um, We considered throwing in the towel and telling the students to go home, but finally, we pulled out all the stops and ended up in a very raw space, um, filled with Gobi desert sand, no electricity, no phone, no internet, not even any doors, we spent the first two days sweeping out that sand. It was across the street from our friend, the artist Ai Weiwei, um, in what was then the backwater of the now famous 798 Arts District, if you know Beijing at all. We found ourselves in a place called Chaochengdi, a small urban village which was unknown to us at that time, and it was undergoing something of an extreme transformation. So in three days, we had all the necessary amenities in place, and once we were there, we experienced a form of human congregation unlike anything we'd ever experienced before.
2: so I'll back up just a little bit. Uh, we got to Beijing uh, in a peculiar way. Uh, this is a story that could be a half an hour, but I will shorten it to uh, less than a minute. Uh, a Scottish bloke, uh, uh, Bernard Webb, uh, through his uh, compatriot in the U.S., uh, well, also in England, Drew him Hammond, uh, gave us a call. This would have been in 2002 and said, could we, uh, you would be perfect to help introduce steel construction to China and therefore be in line to build endless numbers of 80 story office buildings. We informed Bernard and Drew that the the tallest building we'd ever done was two or three stories and uh, they should really call up SOM or or Norman Foster. Um, And they insisted over and over and then finally, uh, we said, okay, uh, and, uh, but we couldn't go right away. And we, uh, Bernard got through to Drew and said, because uh, we, we were going to be picking our olives in, uh, in Rome. Drew said, um, oh, what good fortune, because Bernard will be there as well. And uh, anyways, we, we ended up, uh, therefore, in Beijing. Uh, and it was true uh, Bernard had good connections. The, the uh, Shanghai gang was in power, and those were basically his connection, connections. Uh, needless to say, uh, <coughs> steel construction took care of itself, and uh, and the tall buildings uh, went to other people.
1: So we found ourselves landing in Changdi uh, in Beijing, in China. Um, uh, new ecological orders. Um, we found ourselves confronted with a whole series of very extreme conditions um, of urbanism and um, of larger things, which this, this addresses here, um, that go, went beyond simple issues of sustainability or uh, simple distinctions between what was natural and artificial. And actually, one of the things we learned, um, which is just uh, so stunning and hard to believe, is that over three billion trees have been planted in Beijing over the last few years. And this is um, actually, as we'll see later, part of a realization of a plan of 1959 for Beijing that Chairman Mao had proposed um, for all cities that called for 40% greenery coverage, um, a little bit ahead of its time and surprising to us. But this afforestation that's going on throughout China is counteracting this massive deforestation that really began with Chairman Mao's agricultural practices, clearing land um, uh, to grow food. And it turns out that now the continuation of that has a lot to do with what you're seeing right here, which are um, wooden chopsticks. Um, 45 billion pears are produced in China every year, and that requires 25 million trees. They're um, exported to many Asian countries. Um, luckily now they're being replaced with bamboo chopsticks um, for a, a large amount, which is a much more sustainable practice. This is actually a table that our students built at our space studios. Um, again, we come from a, a kind of world of practice, an architecture, even close to art practice at some time. Some time. So this is 40,000 chopsticks that produce a kind of a table or a surface to eat upon. And this is a chopstick steamer stool composed of 3,000 chopsticks. This is a one-child family policy um, family of three. Um, enough uh, chopsticks for half a year.
2: To water the trees in the desert environment of Beijing, Engineered rainmaking has been enacted by the Bureau of Weather, Weather Modification. By the Bureau of Weather Modification, um, 70 rockets of silver iodide produces two days of rain, providing uh, a good dose of quote top-down irrigation.
1: And we're, we're going to hand out just a few things through the lecture. Again, being architects, we like to touch things and have material things and not just uh, abstractions. So we're going to hand around. Don't actually open this up, <laughs> but this is uh, these are some silver iodide.
2: When he's not tending the uh, cherry orchards outside of Beijing, Yu Yonggang can be found between the twin barrels of a retired 37-millimeter anti-aircraft gun, blasting shells into passing clouds. I don't feel like God, he says. I'm just an ordinary worker. Last year's uh, Olympic opening ceremonies and this year's 60th anniversary of the revolution ceremonies benefit from the likes of this ordinary worker. And I have to say, I was just there, actually, by coincidence, with uh, seven students uh, doing some reconnaissance in Chao Di, and Monday it was uh, the, the anniversary was on, on on Thursday, which was a television event except for the, th- the one million people that were in the parade uh, it was it was sort of s- shocking in a way uh, uh, but uh, Monday was a beautiful day Tuesday it was overcast badly Wednesday even worse and Thursday morning I've got a early and uh, at 6.30, it was just socked in, overcast. Uh, and by uh, 8.30, the sky was crystal clear, blue, not a cloud anywhere.
1: Chow chang farmers, floaters, taxi drivers, artists, and the international art mob challenge and remake the city.
2: This first story is close to us. We are li- literally living in the, the story of Chao chang participating in its growth and change, and existing very much as illegal residents. Yes, the police station registers us when we are there, but only as temporary residents. Our constructions are illegal, and the legal, quote, legal setup for base Beijing is, for the most part, illegal. In a pocket defined by uh, the intersection of the massive state-planned Fifth Ring Road, which was at the edge of Beijing when it was finished in 2002, and, of course, not now, and the airport expressway that took visitors to the city of Beijing and to the One World, One Dream Olympic venues sits the urban village of Chengdi. And the
1: village is in the Chaoyang District. The Chaoyang District, which is by far the largest revenue-producing district of all of China, it actually accounts for 2.5% of the entire GDP of the whole country, one district alone. So it's where the CBD is, it's where the embassies are, Um, incredibly wealthy and productive district. But yet tucked away within this context, um, Chaochengi is a thriving early 21st century urban space of mostly illegal structures, being built by a combination of entrepreneurial farmers, uh, contemporary art dealers and artists and others. It's very much unlike the very um, visible large-scale plan developments that characterize much of Beijing and other cities in China and worldwide in cities that are in the process of, of forming. And what is, but what is unique um, in Chao Chaochengdi, while it's unique, it's actually quite indicative of another kind of urbanism going on invisibly and between the cracks, cracks in many Chinese cities and world cities. The well, Chowchong details a story specific to itself and its four to 7,000 mostly illegal residents, but it also has embedded within it the problems and possibilities of urban space as they occur in this very unique and pivotal point in human history that we find ourselves in um, as rural to urban migrations for the first time ever now. Fifty percent of us are living in cities. Fifty percent of us are living in rural areas or countrysides.
2: Uh, China rupture urbanism? A Chronology of Change in Chao
1: So at Peking University, um, a, a thesis student there uh, in the architecture program, He Hui Shan, developed an idea about Beijing. She called it rupture urbanism. And it deals primarily with 20th, 20th century Beijing. And she describes really um, amazingly well the, the, the fairly major political and spatial ruptures that have had an impact on the formation of the city in the 20th century. Um, and in fact, this is not something new for Beijing. And in, in fact, if you looked at look at the city from dynasty to d- dynasty, the um, location of the city, the name of the city, and the shape of the city changed quite distinctly.
2: And I think, I think you could you could uh, make an argument. We're not going to uh, do this here, but uh, although just through this example, in in a sense, all cities. Uh, Today, that are in the sort of developing mode, go through this same process of ruptures that produce a, a, a jump forward, another rupture, a jump forward, another rupture, a jump forward. This happened in, the, in uh, our, our, our place in the US uh, in the, the late uh, 1800s for places like Manhattan and Chicago. Uh, uh, Earlier than that, St. Louis.
1: Even like Los Angeles going from a desert to a, a city or an urban area.
2: In, in, in two, zo- two times, in the 20s and then in once again after World War II. Uh, and uh, so Beijing and all the other Chinese cities, uh, and we're probably waiting for this to happen, in, uh, in, although it's beginning in India, uh, go through these ruptures. One one of China's uh, extreme conditions is is that Chao Chengdi has given us a direct look into is an urbanism of change, of the unfinished, and of the city forever in the process of becoming. Change has become a phenomenon in the village since its origin. As a grass wildland, Chao Chengdi translates from Mandarin as grassland. It has undergone radical change as a Qing dynasty imperial burial site then it was completely stripped away during the Cultural Revolution to make room for an agriculture, agricultural people's commune and agriculture. And then... And these, uh, these
1: are the fields in Chaotongi in that era, and the, and the commune, the workers and farmers in the commune.
2: And then uh, after 1978, as a semi-privatized industrial landscape during Deng Xiaoping's reform period.
1: And This is just a mosaic of some of the buildings in the village that are from that era, the kind of factory um, productive landscape buildings.
2: And recently, uh, Vanity Fair and Condé Nast Traveler described Chao Chengdi as one of the world's coolest art destinations. Finally, the most recent change alongside the new high art twist is that the former farmers are transforming themselves into landlords by demolishing their single-story houses and building new illegal multi-story constructions on the land that they do not own, but for which they have a legal land lease from the government. Heterotopia extraordinaire, simultaneity is without the collapse of difference, chain migrations, and Martha Stewart pays a visit to the village.
1: So Tao Di now is um, home to this funny mix of farmers, of taxi drivers and their companies, foreign art patrons and gallery dealers, a lot of art students, um, who migrate there, and other odd industry people. Oops. Oh, here, too. Also to high-tension repair people. Um, we turned a corner one day uh, around from Chao Chong Di and looked up in the sky and had to just blink because those uh, we found that those were not birds on the wire, uh, but human beings at work. And Robert's passing around um, the typical issue workers' bag. Almost every... One of the floating population in um, Chinese cities that have come from rural areas to act in the construction trade would have one of these bags. And it has a kind of electrical symbol and then the slogan, um, produce safely. So, and the village is also home to rural and urban, uh, rural to urban chain migrants like the ones mapped here. Um, These migrations don't happen in a kind of willy nilly way. Um, this, this actually maps one group of people that we happen to know quite well um, and shows the kind of familial and village and um, friend, friendly ties and how they all ended up in, in Chaochenggi as opposed to different villages. And then even more recently, the National and International Contemporary Art Mob has moved in, and they've been following a chain migration um, really started um, and provoked by Ai Weiwei, one of the premier artists um, and now architects in China, if you know. He was one of the collaborators on the Bird's Nest Stadium with Herzog and Demeron. And then the villagers have produced a kind of canine migration by importing dogs that are as internationally diverse as the art crowd, crowd now in the village. So there are dog breeds from Siberia, France, Portugal, Croatia, e- et cetera, and so on. And this really has to do with the fact that the farmers, now that they've built their buildings, They're not out farming the land um, for long hours. They now can sit back, their landlords collecting rents, and there's a a kind of time and a space of new leisure in China, and um, the dog situation, having pets, is um, part of that.
2: The China Hood slash village is just part of a wild mix that forms a physical, spatial, and architectural heterotopia extraordinaire. The traditional village fabric sits in the midst of a landscape of ring roads, expressways, rail tracks, mid-rise housing, suburban villas, factories, high-tech, high-end international galleries and art studios, agriculture, and more. You can see this mix in this photograph as we dissect it. Original village structures, new multi-story buildings, active construction sites, impromptu markets, new studios and galleries, here is an urban shepherd and his flock roaming the streets of the capital city of China, coexisting with the new studios and galleries.
1: And while 50 yards away, a migrant sewer worker's took a nap in their temporary tent housing. Uh, Martha Stewart strolled into the, visit, the village and paid a visit to Ai Weiwei. Um, she was curious about his new lifestyle and, and architecture as it had sprung up in the village. Illegal, illegitimate urbanism, fake or interior real estate architecture produces a new Chinese middle class—a uh, spontaneous, ad hoc, cratic, mongrel architecture, or the natural village.
2: All of the new vi- uh, building uh, in the village is illegal, and I must say, uh, or at least not legal, whether built by uh, entrepreneurial farmers. Or, by Iwa Wei, who, when speaking about the buildings that he has designed and built in the village with fake design, says all my all of my buildings in the village are illegal um, he, he, when he uh, first came back, uh, as many artists uh, did in the uh, late 1980s, uh, there was something called the star group, and they they smelled they sensed something in the air, which was of course turned into a Tiananmen, uh and it was uh, had to do with uh, co- government corruption and, and the, the economy going sort of very strange directions. And they left uh, bec- because uh, art at that time was severely censored. Uh, they left and went to other countries. So Ai Weiwei went to New York along with some other people. And uh, they, he came back around uh, uh, the late 1990s, probably 1999, uh, was living at home uh, with his mother and father. Uh, his father had been uh, or was one of the premier poets in China and uh, his mother finally got sick of him around and said "You know, why don't you go out and earn a living uh, and so he I guess he asked one of his friends uh, and uh, they, they said why don't you, uh, I don't know how the contact was made with the Chao Changdi but they said it's sort of a place and uh, not too far from uh, uh, the famous uh, Ka- Kafa Central Academy of Art in China um, and so he went over and uh, saw some empty land and talked to the village leader. And uh, the village leader said, yeah, you can, you can uh, use it. I'm, I'm sure they made a financial arrangement to use the, the piece of land. Uh, but the village leader said, it's, on your, it's at your risk. Uh, if, if the government wants the land or wants to tear it down, they have the perfect right to do it.
1: And, and what he built, actually, this is his house and studio. It was a kind of hybrid of a New York loft because one of the depressing things for him when he went back being in New York, there was no space like you had seen in New York for artists to do their work in, but a kind of hybrid between that and, and a Chinese courtyard house. The, th-
2: this map uh, shows the legal structures in gray uh, and illegal uh, in the predominantly black. And then, also a note here this does not include, uh, does not account for the recent village villager activity, and when we say recent villager activity, we're talking about the last five months.
1: Which we'll talk about in a, in a bit. Zironsun uh, is a, a Chinese term uh, which means natural village, and in, in China there are two kinds of villages, whether we're looking at an urban or a, a rural village, um, and a natural village is one that's sprung up of its own accord, in a sense from the bottom up to fill some need of labor or something else, whereas an administrative village, the other kind of village, is administered and put in place from the top down in a more planned fashion. Chao Chongdi is historically a natural village, um, having sprung up to serve the imperial uh, burial grounds that were there, and that natural growth really continues today um, with the architecture that is both um, high, pure, and minimal in the case of Ai Weiwei and some of the other artists, designers there, but at other times is, is low, Id- 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 etiocratic, spontaneous, and mongrel, and that these two coexist together. Ai Weiwei again
2: this is one of the oddities it's, uh, it's right on the uh, edge it's part of Chao Chengdi but uh, <coughs> at the edge uh, this is it's, we saw this uh, sign at the entrance to the village and it said Iowa one of our states in the US and uh, the uh, and we didn't pay much attention for the first year uh, first months that we were there and then, finally, uh, one of our students' the family came over, I guess, and was visiting, and uh, they somehow were taken to this place. Well, it turns out Iowa uh, was established by a, a person that had, whose father had more or less been one of the mayors of Beijing until 1949. Then the family decided to, to leave and, uh, and run off to Taiwan. Uh, he was uh, this person uh, was sent then not sent. He, he went off to um, to the University of uh, Kent, Kent State, State University in the U.S. and uh, got his degree, uh, I think, before the shooting, uh, and then ended up at the University of Iowa for most of his life as a uh, uh
1: professor of theoretical mathematics there.
2: Yeah, but somehow, because it was Iowa, he. He uh, he got interested in beef and uh, aged beef and, and well, corn-fed well, fed beef, beef,
1: which he taught Mongolian farmers how to how to replicate.
2: <laughs> so he he I guess retired earlier to something, but he, he brought his family back, and somehow they had rights to uh, a piece of land, or they I think they he had rights his to. his family.
1: It. He was able to reclaim the, the land from pre-1949 in the, in this kind of edge of the city.
2: But it was illegal to uh, build anything but farm structures. Uh, he was not interested at all in farming. And so he uh, established these sort of Quonset hut buildings. Which are basically
1: greenhouses, so they look um, so like So it looked, agricultural like, it looked buildings. like farm.
2: And, uh, uh, and then he set, he set up a, a, a restaurant and trained some uh, farmers in Mongolia to have their beef fed up by, on corn, which is not particularly mm-hmm. healthy, but it certainly makes the beef taste better. And, and a
1: suburban style house that reminded me of things where I grew up in suburban Seattle. So, in one of these. Um,
2: one of them is dedicated to his uh, either Lincoln or Cadillac. Uh,
1: Cadillac with uh, Iowa plates that reverse migrated with him back to Beijing.
2: And the ping pong table, which is Chinese. And then his miniature golf course, which we've never seen anyone use. Which is sort of nice that it sort of has
1: Chinese characteristics to it, not quite the, the pure version. Oops. Um, yeah? Yeah. And then this slide illustrates something uh, that for us is quite...
2: Iowa is... Yes, Iowa is... The curved roof. Right here.
1: And this is the National Film Museum at the end. After this uh, became an arts district, the government decided to set up the national film industry as sort of a a kind of leech on the creative cultural zone that had finally made the magazines due to the artists having really developed it. Um, And because of that... Um, and a kind of recognition of um, this having developed as a cultural scene, what for us was pretty interesting is that even though this was an illegal zone, the government has not clamped down on it. Um, In fact, um, the government seems to be allowing the urban villages, um, certain of the urban villages to exist and develop, and also in a way stealthily supporting them. This is um, new infrastructure being put into our village, Um, separated sanitary and storm sewers, new water and gas pipes. And uh, this happened about two, three years ago. Before that, um, you know, the smell, the insects, et cetera, were, were crazy. This has really solved um, a lot of the problems of um, that in the village. So, so in a way, it's, the government is actually supporting, in a quiet way, the growth occurring from the ground up by these art entrepreneurial villagers and artists.
2: And as part of the, uh, a part of this effort, you know, and again, in the, in the, in the morning, small gear in Beijing. <coughs> the The National uh, Film Museum um, is there. see it but the only way you can get to it, well, not the only way, but the, the easiest way to get to it is off the fifth ring road, but you can, you can only go in one direction on the fifth ring road and there 's an off ramp that takes you uh, down the street where we have sort of where we are and, 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 the, and the various other things highway way and so on and uh, and then they they widened the road next to us and widened this road so you could get to the thing uh, but they 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 realized uh, and we I guess we saw the plans for the thing to do the on ramp to the fifth ring road you would have to tear up most of Jajangdi so they've held off on that mm-hmm. uh, the, the I'll say the villagers but it's uh, we, we've done it one or two times um, the, uh, to get onto the fifth ring road you you actually have to turn your car around and uh, go backwards face oncoming
1: freeway traffic the, the <laughs> highway traffic the off
2: ramp. And get until you get onto the fifth ring road, and then you're cool. You can go straight,
1: or some people back into it <laughs> and then right. forward. So in a way, the government um, is accommodating this life and small-scale development going on in the village. Um, they don't have to invest in large, uh, large-scale uh, consuming planning um, and the, the kind of money and development that's required to support it. So it's sort of being done in a sense for them. So this kind of incremental urbanism produced by the invested city dwellers themselves forms a the kind of city that Jane Jacobs describes as one that learns from cumulative wisdom that's fast on its feet and it adapts at a moment's notice. Workaholic, 24-7 city, scenes and routines, lanterns and cinemas to the passerby.
2: Uh, no question. Chao is a, a kind of work, workaholic's dream city. It operates uh, 24-7 um, and to just put this into context, uh, Cha Di is not unique. And most people, in actually a fair amount of the world, uh, do work seven, s- six or seven days a week, certainly six days a week, uh, 12 hours a day, uh, as the standard work week.
1: So, so for instance, this is a, a shopkeeper and his son taking a nap behind the counter. I'm coming in at about 6.30 in the morning to buy some juice from uh, the mother and wife of the, these two people. And they're taking naps after their uh, 4 a.m., Pickups and deliveries, and will then go on to the school day and the shopkeeping keep- day.
2: I was deleted. And th- I used to. This is a scene I used to walk by uh, when I would, uh, in the early days, make uh, trips back and forth from Los Angeles to Beijing, and uh, <coughs> we were doing some construction work. And uh, Jason, who was uh, helping us, and. and obviously speaking Mandarin uh, with uh, Sha Liu and his workers. Uh, he, so I would go back and forth. And so I would get up early in the morning, probably because of jet lag, and go get some bauza up in the center of Chao Chengdi. And that's when I really first got to know the place. And I'd walk by the scene, but the scene had people around it. And they were eating uh, dinner. This was at 6.30 in the morning. And uh, after a while, we'd wave to each other. And then, uh, then uh, unfortunately, well, I guess it could have been fortunately, but I, I, they said, why don't you come and join us? We're having dinner. It's like I, at 6.30 in the morning, it didn't seem like uh, 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 that appetizing. And so I had to beg off it. Uh, and uh, after a while, they stopped waving at me. I think it was, it was rude to them. For not having uh, dinner, but this the crowd it became clear after a while. The crowd was uh, were taxi cab drivers, and they were just finishing their shift, turning the car over to somebody that they were sharing a room with in Chao Chengdi, and that other person was off. Uh,
1: so some of the housing taxi. stock in Chao Chengdi is taxi driver um, housing. This is the courtyard of, of that housing in the village, and this is a little sequence that takes you through this shift change um, as a lot fills up with the day drivers. Um, then uh, at, at dusk, the, night dri- the day drivers come back, switch with the night drivers, and then the beds are exchanged as well in the rooms. And this is a project by one of our thesis students, Chris Ward, who filmed down at the main intersection in the village um, for one hour in the morning. But then at night, um, 12 hours later, he went back and reprojected that morning scene onto the night scene. And it became a kind of slipped overlap of time and space Reflecting this non-stop or twelve-hour night and day shifts of taxi drivers construct and construction workers in the village. Inside out urbanism or Li Wai Bufen. There's a saying in China, Li Wai Bufen, and this is a way of describing a kind of lack of clarity um, about what's inside and what's outside. And it can refer to your clothes being turned inside out like this, um, to not knowing a friend from an enemy or to not being able to discern the difference between your home affairs or private affairs and external or public affairs. And quoting from a lecture that Pili did for us at base, he's an art curator, um, one of the top art curators in Beijing, he talked about how before 1992 in China, we did not have a notion of private space or at least not such a definition between private and public space. Every space was public. Um, You go to 798, the arts district in the former military Donway now, and you can still see that kind of format of collective buildings. It's more like a hostel. You don't have a toilet, you don't have a kitchen. Everybody had one bedroom, and we shared the kitchen, we shared the bathroom. And that had something to do with the fact that all the land in China was owned collectively by the the people or the government. Um, So this new kind of real estate thing where people actually own their own houses has really changed lives. People started to have their own private spaces. That's the main thing. In the 1990s, it was a fantastic dream for a Chinese family to have their own apartment with their own kitchen, toilet, and two bedrooms. For Westerners, Pei said, it's very hard to understand how this change can inform and transform daily life for Chinese people. But people at that time then started to have um, public space and versus uh, and separate from private space, their own space to act within. On any given sunny day in Chaochengdi village, the rare break from the overcast gray Beijing sky is taken to advantage, and the bed covers and quilts come out of the houses for a sun bleach. The village transforms for a few hours while the temporary soft facades clad the brick, ha- brick houses. This low-tech laundry method is especially useful in a place like Chaochengdi, where running water and drainage infrastructure were not present in most of the dwellings. That's, that's changed somewhat.
2: And one of the things... You know, for us, uh, maybe it's just our eyes or the way they work or our head. But, uh, you know, they, they have a fair m- amount of, uh, at this point, galleries in uh, <coughs> uh Most of the really serious galleries moved from 798, which is where the art scene really established itself in China, uh, and uh, up to di, where it was less of kind of a circus uh, and knickknack knack chops and so on. Uh, and so the the blankets, you know. So they have great; they're very good shows uh, the, the, in the galleries, and it's a, it's amazing that that it coexists with the rest of the the village. But then outside, uh, you'll see this, which is quite frankly as good as uh, a fair number of the shows. But it's just happening in a kind of natural mm-hmm.
1: way. Architectural production and reproduction cycles of fake, fake, and double fake. Control C, control V. <laughs> and the culture of copy.
2: In this entrepreneurial, illegal environment, the culture of the copy and the copy thieves
1: thrives. The co-
2: thrives, okay.
1: Right. And we're going to hand you uh, around one of the um, art uh, fake luxury goods that are produced in China.
2: And and the issue we won't go into this in a sort of a long way but the the, uh, the, the culture of the copy uh, is, is the, the, the copy has a totally different meaning from the, the, a kind of western interpretation where you're always maybe since the renaissance inventing new things and believing that the new is always going to sort of uh, upstage the older thing and then we have progress and so on. Uh, in the Confucius uh, system that's, that's not the case in and,
1: Taoist and philosophy things gain value in their repetition or their remaking and the, the kind of re, restatement of something anew so it, it's a kind of reversal of our western view perhaps on this idea that, that
2: and Ai Weiwei's uh, uh, design studio called Fake uh, is in Chao Chengdi and led by Ai Weiwei and has designed and built uh, some projects there the farmer and that's this one on the left the farmers who are constructing the new multi-story buildings, and at this time, not very many, uh, definitely took a, a notice of Ai Weiwei's architecture, and mainly uh, that the, uh, the wealthy foreigners who were paying high rents for them, the small farmers started to make fakes of the fakes. So th- this
1: is a whole series of images on the left. You'll see a real fake design by Ai Weiwei and his team international team, and on the right uh, a farmer making an artificial or fake um, coffee <laughs> <laughs> like so. fake 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 and they're, they're sometimes right across the street from each other, it's like, okay, this is happening <laughs> alright, we can do it here
2: it, and there's another sort of take on this, for those of you that have read the book uh, 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 Gomorrah uh, covering the uh, Italian mafia Camorra uh, uh, it, it, the same thing comes up but in a, in a uh, and, and with the, with the, uh, the Pradas and the Armanis and so on of the world uh, completely complicit in it and not unhappy at all that their goods are being reproduced at a much lower cost and disseminated throughout the world uh, it's a, it's a, it's a it's kind of it's like a pat on the back to them and future customers one year later.
1: So last fall, the lecture uh, basically ended uh, where we just stopped and uh, we curtailed it a, a bit more this year, running through a kind of catalog, and inventory of the conditions um, and things that, that were producing the urbanism in that funny urban village. So uh, in, at CCA in Montreal, the project really involved that one very specific village that was indicative of um, other places in China. But... Um, One year later, it's really expanded through our work with our students there um, to include a dynamic network of cities, of towns, and urban and rural villages within the greater municipal region of of Beijing, which is shown here. It covers 16,800 square kilometers of land. And we're now in the process of exploring uh, a kind of new space that exists between urban and rural China. And um, we really think that this new space has been produced by an amalgam of conditions and entities that that will attempt to delaminate or attempting to delaminate tonight. And they really include global and local economies and specific conditions of a communist and uh, socialist system, of politicians and government, of um, new communication technologies. This is a flat screen TV with satellite dish in a rural village um, uh, three hours out of Beijing where we were the first foreigners that some of them had seen. But so there's this new access to these technologies by rural um, and and that these conditions of the space between rural and urban have also been produced by the rural and urban inhabitants and their migrations by entrepreneurs and the effects uh, again of these migrations. And this space is really being formed without and or in spite of official planning methods. And yet the space has produced new urban slash rural environments that offer creative and intelligent alternatives to the current standard large-scale planning methods. And we're calling this space, at least for now, rural-apolitan space, because we've really found that the boundaries between rural and urban are much less clear than we'd once imagined. And we think that this new space requires a way of looking at the urban and the rural not as distinct and different environments, but rather as part of a larger network or interconnected or interdependent field. So DGU, Dispersal Group Unit Urbanism, Checkerboard Urbanism, Forest of Smokestacks. Chairman Mao was a radical urban designer. So to find the origins of this kind of rural-apolitan form, as seen in the urban village, we we hit upon this plan for Beijing, and it's one of the ones that seems to get left out as planners look at these kind of famous um, plans that were made for Beijing. This was produced in 1959. And uh, Liang Sicheng, if you know anything about the uh, Chinese urban planning, was one of the great uh, planners of the 20th century, was involved with the design along with a team of Chinese and Soviet um, planners. But on this plan, what what is said is that Chairman Mao was the primary influence or or maker of ideas for this plan.
2: It was called uh, Dispersal Group Unit Urbanism. Uh, And it turned out to be a fairly radical proposal for a city. Uh, and, and one that, that may certainly be relevant uh, uh, by implication uh, today in some way. Uh, it is a proposal for a producer city.
1: I won't pronounce it quite right.
2: As opposed to a consumer city. Uh, this is an urbanism of dozens of tripartite collections of agriculture, factory, and village. Between these units, the plan calls for forests or more agriculture. And adi- the, an additional mandate of the 1959 plan, Mao specifically raised the issue of having 40% green coverage in urban areas.
1: And so this was not a, just a model for Beijing, it was really a model for all Chinese cities um, going into the, his new era um, of China.
2: Is it's is an it urbanism that puts the countryside in the city, predating but anticipating, as we will see later the new socialist urban and rural village mandate in China. But this 1958 uh, uh, plan was never officially adopted, but as one writer mentioned, it was used in practice, and in later years, it has vastly affected the way Beijing looks today, which we will now see. And, if, uh, and it is there, if you look between the cracks and find that uh, there are nearly 500 Chao in in Beijing,
1: these are all the urban villages.
2: So therefore, if there are 500 in, in uh, Beijing and the, these were all been easily seen on, on Google, um, there are uh, maybe 50,000 in, in the, urban, the urban cities of China. Mm-hmm.
1: And my and Robert says, they're easily seen from Google Earth, which is how we first sat down with our students to map them and discover them. They are not visible when you drive through the city as a normative city dweller or visitor. Um, you don't see them. Um, But when you actually then look up close to them, and and we first looked at them from the the air, we've now been on the ground and and have actually entered a lot of these. But from the air, you can see that they actually follow this tripartite programming. Um, So you've got village, which is the people's commune or the housing. You've got agriculture and factory. Another version of that, the the blue roofs are always uh, the factories. The agriculture and the village... And then they're amazingly adaptable to strange anomalies. So, for instance, this one has mid-rise housing blocks slammed right down into the middle of the um, commune housing area. This one has a, f- a freeway interchange running right through it, and this one has an airport runway. The phenomena of the urban village, or, or more directly in Chinese, the chengjiangxun, it would be the village in the city. Um, so that might be a better translation than urban village and then, then the role that, that, that it plays in the city
2: as we just saw uh, and said, it turns out that Chao Chengdi is just one of nearly 500 urban villages uh, that we have identified and cataloged uh, the villages are nearly invisible uh, from the normative city either screened by layers of trees uh, or by whitewashed walls behind the scenes these villages are raising unique city making voices of their own an estimated 1.5 million people, or one in every 10 Beijingers, live in, the, in these villages in urban uh, atmospheres like Chaochengdi. It is a Beijing not seen during the Olympics, or even by normal city dwellers, but it is a prevalent urbanism.
1: And so you could see here um, you know, that some of these villages, yes, are on the edge of Beijing, but there, for instance, is an urban village right around the corner from CCTV right here. Um, now being demolished, actually. Um, The site of the New American Embassy is right here, and there are several villages. We're going to zoom in on that on the next slide, I believe. Um, Or that Nestle's um, headquarters is surrounded by them as well. So that that was the whole CBD area. It's it's packed with urban villages that are never seen. And you can see this crazy mix um, here. So the site of the New American Embassy is at sea, right here. Um, The Lufthansa Center is here. And the Kempinski Five Star Hotel, one of the favorite um, hotels for international meetings. Um, if you've been to Beijing, you've probably been there. A suburban style um, housing area, probably for expats working in the embassies. Um, factories are right here in the backyard of that. And then the A's are urban villages. Again, you don't see them when you're visiting the Kempinski or the embassies, but there are three urban villages here. Um, a ring road. And agriculture here, actually mostly tree farms um, to support that afforestation that we looked at earlier, and then a golf course down here. So uh, incredibly odd mix that you don't only sense from the ground. So we can ask the question, what role do these urban villages actually play in the city, in, in um, Chinese cities, and what do they provide? So for one thing, they provide low-cost centralized housing for service sector workers in these new multi-story farmer buildings. So even while illegal and unofficial, the quality is actually not so bad, and it really is the only option. It's really the only low-cost housing, urban housing, being built in the cities right now. So certainly filling quite a large gap in the official planning. They also provide for local agriculture. Um, for fresh food in close proximity to urban populations. I know something probably on all our minds these days. They also provide a kind of alternative to a landscape of object buildings, an alternative to the city of master planning and market economy, where FARs and daylight distance setbacks, which really have their origins in Western planning thought, Gropius and others, um, where these formulas really produce these kind of shadow lands like this. This Google Ariel caught it right at the moment where the legal term is illustrated. We're not going to shade our neighbor at the the most extreme sun position. But these uh, shadow lands really produce um, scenes like this of vastness, of emptiness, a completely non-vital urbanism devoid of people except for the occasional security guards looking after the place.
2: So uh, we feel these urban villages provide and uh, around the clock urbanism since day and night the, uh, the urban village street life is thriving the urban village also provides democracy at the local level since all the village leaders are voted into office and this is something that is uh, 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 not b- very well known in, in the west I think uh, both the urban villages and the rural villages we'll, which we'll get to in a second uh, the uh, the leaders Of of the villages are elected uh, through voting. And they have the same uh, in terms of that it's a kind of democracy, they have the same kind of uh, of, uh, influencing and and, uh, something that you could call corruption uh, of course. Uh, The urban villages supply specialized services and labor that fill the gaps and account for the ebbs and flows of the urban economy. Some example of these specialized services are recycling, The urban villages are where most of the sorting of recycling takes place. Western style entertainment for expat housing, um, in this case, uh, Bu Lu Ying Village, is situated between two wealthy, mostly expat, gated suburban style housing developments in northeast Beijing, close to the airport for escape. Uh, It has been established, uh, it has established itself as a service spot for foreigners who go there for pharmaceuticals, both legal and illegal, antique shops, massage parlors, pubs, and internet cafes. It serves as a kind of antidote to the sterile, private, suburban-like communities that surround it, which are devoid of shops and streetlights. And in fact, the village provides the only, the village has supplied only uh, highly public and active social space and nightlife for miles around.
1: Yeah, we have a friend that lives in one of those adjacent uh, expat communities, and he says, you know, the kids, but also he and his wife find themselves sneaking over there because it's the, kind of the only place where anything's happening.
2: Arts dist- uh, also, arts districts, the, the urban mm-hmm. villages are where the arts districts usually take hold mm-hmm. because there's a kind of uh, ease because of the, uh, of the Lack of accepted Ill- illegality of the whole situation. Uh, that you could just go in there, set up shop, and. And the economical
1: ability to live quite economically as
2: well. Uh, taxi cab companies and their drivers. Uh, small scale urban manufacturing, such as furniture making. The urban villagers uh, also provide. Oh.
1: Yeah, and so, I, so those are some of the, the kind of roles that the thing, the urban villages play in their, their programs, the pro- programmatic um, supplements that they make to the city. Um, and, and, rep-
2: and let me, let me interrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, a, a big percentage of the uh, population of, of the cities in China, but it's, it's, it goes farther than that, which I guess we'll get to, uh, are made up of uh, what's called in China the floating population. Uh, they, in a sense, are illegal residents of Beijing. In Los Angeles we have them. Uh, probably a th- easily a quarter of the population of Los Angeles is they made up of illegal residents, and they, in, in in China, they do most of the construction, which is the biggest industry in China. Uh, they fill most of the factories, uh, and do enormous amounts of other other work. In Beijing, probably of the, let's say, 25 percent or 20 percent of the population, about a, a quarter or 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 20 percent of this population basically live in middle class housing. Uh, except that they are uh, the caretakers of the kids uh, or the kid while the parents are both away working.
1: So the urban villages also provided another model for density or the way to kind of configure buildings on land to house people. And so we've compared um, in the next diagram the typical farmer constructions in Chaochongdi, which are now three, four, five stories. So we're comparing this fabric in here to a tower, a uh, kind of mid-rise tower housing that's right down here called Silver Maple, um, where some of our students were living both here and here, so we got to know both of these places um, next to each other. So we're going to look at this piece of land, and, and if we look at it, we can see that the same piece of land, um, well, that if Silver Maple Tower houses 840 people, um, at a rental cost per person per month of 1,000 yuan or about 155 U.S. dollars, if we put over that the fabric of Chao former new farmer constructions, um, that the same piece of land would house 3,200 people at a rental cost of 70 yuan or about 10 U.S. dollars per person. And this is on real estate that's it, it, precisely adjacent to each other. So these urban villages are, are breeding grounds for entrepreneurs and are in some ways social and economic ladders for the villagers who are now becoming wealthy landlords through this this architecture, as well as for the rural urban migrants who are living in those structures, the floating population. But clearly, Robert Neuwer's book, Shadow Cities, A Billion Squatters, A New Urban World, points out that this phenomena of self-built environments is a very massive but silent force in cities forming and reforming themselves today. And he, he and others have stated that by 2050, there will be 3 billion city dwellers, more than one third of, of the world's population, living at the edge, often illegal, living in and occupying illegal structures in unplanned parts of the cities, under the radar, but clearly part of the city, and perhaps in, in some cases, containing the DNA for creative and unexpected alternatives to city growth and change. Now some of these villages are disappearing. They're going through dismantling processes, um, overseen by orders given from above, the the Chai Chien, or um, Demolish and Relocation Bureau. But this is being done um, without plans for replacing what all of those things that we just talked about, that the urban villages provide in the city, maybe uh, especially where do all of these rural to urban um, migrants now live um, in the city. Beihuchu is a village formerly associated with a liquor factory. So again, we're seeing our pattern of factory, um, village, and agriculture. The liquor factory is now turned into an art ghetto, but unlike Chengdi, it's been walled off from that um, village, so it doesn't, uh, isn't able to sort of interact or uh, have a kind of mutual vitality. It it exists as one of these recycling centers like the photograph we saw before, but it also sits within a landscape of encroaching golf courses. So the first PGA golf course in China was built right next to this. And the village is suspended within this demolition and relocation process. About 30% of the families here are dingzuhu, which um, it means a nail household. Um, And what this means, these are stubborn families who resist leaving their traditional homes um, despite the insistence of developers seeking to make enormous profits. They're, hang, they're hanging out for more money, um, for a better deal. And the dingzahu relates to the fact that it's hard to pull out uh, of a piece of wood, a rusty nail, as to get them um, out of here. So amidst the rubble here, village life goes on. Um, the, these, the rubble's actually been overtaken by jungle and, and growth because it's been there so long. And the old foundations of things are being o- reoccupied as gaming, hangout, market, and laundry
0: workspaces.
2: And and uh, in, in this, when it reaches this state, uh, you could uh, use the term, uh, which Robert New, uh, Newworth uses sometimes, uh, as slums. And in some cities, uh, uh, it, let's say uh, Mumbai or Bombay, uh, it, it essentially is slums in the, in the way things are made, slum-like. Uh, uh, but for the most part, the urban villages in Beijing and in China, and Chaochengdi and being a, a typical example, you would never call it a slum. Uh, the, the buildings are well-constructed, uh, brick and concrete, and uh, they're, they're, they're straightforward. Things are relatively clean.
1: The New Socialist Village Micro-Urban Experiments in the new socialist countryside in the city, re peasantization, giving more, taking less, and being more flexible.
2: So, so we're, we've, uh, in the last two years, we've also extended our sort of work out into uh, an even larger question the, the, the uh, rural villages of China. The shift from the rural situation to the city situation has been the greatest factor in city making and city revision in the past 100 years worldwide. And in fact, the past 25 years, the force of migration to the city has been in an extreme condition in successfully developing countries. Clearly, cities are seen as the place to be economically. But are they the place to be socially, spatially, and environmentally? China has perhaps 2 to 4 million, not people, but rural villages, each with populations of two to 500 inhabitants with an average annual income of about 400 U.S. dollars. The new socialist countryside section of the most recent five-year plan 2006 to 2011 for China specifically addresses the vast rural population of China, the 700 million people who are mostly farmers. Um, That that five-year plan put this at the top of their uh, Situations that needed to be addressed, along with another one, which was that the the Chinese education system and the patterns of, of uh, really Chinese thinking, uh, had sort of prevented uh, the 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 country from doing the inventing. Uh, Yes, they were producing, then are producing uh, much of the goods of the world. Uh, but they weren't inventing these things. So helping and finding a way to uh, to, to uh, make the rural villages uh, and the life there much better was one thing, and the other was to try to uh, reform the schools. Um, that in most of the world, the Western world, uh, the farmers are subsidized, certainly in Europe and, and in the U.S. Uh, in China, they had the opposite uh, condition. The, the rural villagers... Uh, uh, because the government owned the land, had to rent the land from the government. And so they are actually paying money in order to and, farm. And then
1: paying taxes on, on the production. Um, so Chinese President Hu Jintao, in this most recent five-year plan, a direct quote of something that he's really said to the countryside is that we will stick to the guideline of giving more, taking less, and being more flexible uh, with that rural population. So these are slogan banners. They're hung throughout Chaochengdi. Um, they're publicizing the new socialist con- countryside mandate. Um, even though we're in the middle of the city, um, Chaochengdi has been mandated as an official um, so new socialist village, and that's it's related to the slogan banner here. But this, so this line between rural and urban and between agriculture and industry, again, is not so clearly demarked at the beginning of the 21st century. Um, from an official Chinese report, Chen shiwen Um, in 2006 says that huge gains in agricultural efficiency have emancipated huge numbers of rural laborers from the land thus laying the basis for the development of farmer run township enterprises whose competitively priced goods and services sell well across China. So it's starting to move into uh, operating a little bit more like like urban productive areas. And these um, township enterprises are involved in many sectors in industry agricultural products, processing, transportation, communications, Construction, commerce, and catering. That's from an official report. This is from a rural village that we visited. Um, this is an ongoing experiment by one rural man that we met. And he's working on developing a prototype for an, a small scale incinerator that could be used at the rural um, village uh, level that would get rid of all the non-recyclable waste that they could send to the city. So everything that's left over, you could see he's stored things into old shoes and plastics, um, but there's something that's left, and he's working on trying to get rid of that without um, polluting the environment. He's able to do it now, but by adding things to the air that um, he doesn't, we don't want to. So by 2004, 22 million township enterprises existed with 138 million employees And they had generated 4.1 billion yuan in added value, and that was a 13.9 increase over the year 2003. So uh, now the driving force between the increase in farmers' income and rural economic development, these township enterprises have created about 30 percent, have created job opportunities for about 30 percent of rural laborers to date, so it's one thing that's sort of causing a, perhaps a shift from these rural to urban migrations. Um, mm-hmm. That no longer do you need to perhaps leave the rural area to have uh, work opportunities or a productive life in some other form than farming. This is a rural bee farm farm, and the farmer who farms it, another person that we met, and this rural entrepreneur has figured out how to, we we couldn't figure out how yet, but has figured out how how to export enough honey to the Philippines to earn 7000 U.S. dollars per year, while most of his neighbors were making, uh, as we said before, about $400 per year.
2: Uh, Jane Jacobs surprised herself and others in the first chapter of The Economy of Cities, Uh, first chapter titled Cities First, Rural Development Later. She says, one of the many surprises I found in the course of this work was that was that uh, was especially unsettling and seemed to run counter to the common sense that work that we usually considered rural has originated not from the countryside but in cities. Current theory in many fields, economics, history, anthropology, assumes that cities are built upon a rural economic base. The reverse, uh, in her eyes, seems true. Rural economies are the outgrowth, including agricultural work, are and directly built upon city economies and city work. Whether we agree or not with uh, Jacobs that the city economics had to develop in advance of establishing agriculture, her arguments do make it clear that strong interdependencies between the two are necessary and even natural. The desire for and perhaps the need for agriculture in proximity or even simultaneously coexistence with cities is a growing trend in the developed world. For China, the need for using any arable land for agriculture, including land in the urban areas, is clear. With only 7% of the world's cultivated land, China has to feed one-fifth of the world's population. In an era that is fundamentally urban, the rural must surely undergo change to remain relevant and engaging. And this change may not need to be radical, Maybe. may need to be Excuse me. radical, Ruptured, and as fast as the change that is occurring in the Chinese city now, and perhaps this change will alter uh, radically our conceptions of the city. The normal way it had gone, uh, in uh, not not counting Europe, but in uh, uh, newer countries like the U.S. and so on, is that. The farming had been industrialized and therefore the farm population had less to do and they moved into the cities. The great migrations in the U.S. uh, from from Europe to the U.S. happened in the 1890s and and on. But then there was this huge migration that took place after World War II from the uh, rural areas of the U.S. into uh, the cities. Uh, In fact, it happened during World War II uh, to man the factories. Uh, and in China, this can't happen. In other countries in India, it, it can't happen. Uh, otherwise, the cities explode and, and the cities uh, grow so fast that all sorts of uh, things can't be taken care of uh, for this kind of population. And we had a hint that the rural population is not so interested in coming to the city. It's, it's almost like they were saying, because we had a, a little boy in, a, in one of these rural villages tell us, you know, what are you going to do when you, you know, graduate from high school or go to college and so on? And he said, "I'd like to come back to uh, my rural village." Because he goes to
1: school in the the larger satellite city because the the education is sort of centralized there.
2: And and uh, and I'd like to set up, uh, make sure we have uh, internet for everybody in the village and so on and so forth. In other words, he, he was saying that we want to be with it. We want to be part of the world. We want to be part of the, in a sense, the life of the city. But we certainly like. The fresh air that we have, we like our neighbors, and we like the the, the land we're living in. in the, so there've been
1: a lot of reverse migrations, and actually, a lot of contemporary Chinese film um, deals with this—the kind of uh, reverse migrations from the city back to the countryside. Uh, one funny story we had: we met a village uh, leader in uh, the village near this uh, larger market town, and uh, we asked him, "What's your most radical idea for your village?" Because he felt, you know, the village was sort of uh, shrinking. Um, being emptied of its vital uh, age group. And he said, actually I had the idea to tear down the entire village and build a skyscraper in the village. So the central party is actually beginning to realize that um, hybrid forms of rural and urban and specifically not suburban space may need to be invented. During the 1990s Asian financial crisis, our friend Bernard Webb that Robert mentioned earlier, who wrote the housing policy for China during Zhang Zemin's era, told us that China weathered that um, economic difficulty by selling, for the first time ever, the houses and apartments in urban areas to the Chinese people, um, thereby producing uh, what he called the largest real estate transaction in the history of humankind, and yet so under the radar that the New York Times didn't even report upon it. Um, During the past year or two, China is now making a parallel maneuver, this time selling land rights to rural property, And meaning that now the rural farmers can actually sell their rights to someone else, and and so that trades and and new forms of exchange can start to happen.
2: Because before this time, uh, a farmer that had the rights to the land was not allowed to transfer those rights to anybody else. Mm. Uh.
1: Legally, right. And so this really, what we're starting to see just uh, hints Mm -hmm. of, that it's beginning to produce a flood of self-investment, and again, a kind of creative Mm -hmm. and, and intelligent alternative to Um, in these self-made entrepreneurial environments, just like we saw in Chaochengdi and some of the urban villages. So in an an era when distinct notions of urban and rural have broken down and come into question, perhaps these new conditions should be considered um, as new sites of potential.
2: We returned to Beijing and Chaochengdi in late April this year for what we call Base 4.0 and found... Uh, the village in a frenzy of construction. Um, and if we gave the impression that Chao Chengdi was a frenzy of construction before this, that was, uh, that's incorrect. Uh, the only frenzy of construction that existed in Chao Chengdi was that uh, first wave of the, uh, the sort of mandate, New Socialist Village, uh, New Socialist Countryside, where they put in the infrastructure in, in uh, coming into, ba- into uh, Chao Chengdi. Uh, so, but this, uh, last April, we found the village in, a, in this frenzy of construction. We were, quite frankly, shocked after the infrastructure improvement two years ago that toured the cities for about six months. Chao Chengdi had settled down to minor constructions, some new galleries, and some uh, renovations in other art spaces. Things were relatively quiet, albeit with the usual urban village vitality. Now, in the core of the village, it seemed, and this is uh, since uh, April, March and April, it seemed that about 25% of all of Chao Chengdi's traditional village-like one-story houses had been torn down, and construction was well underway to construct three-story brick and concrete replacements. And,
0: and
1: what we're passing around now, the, the green coat, is actually a, a kind of something that we made at base with our students. It's a replica of the Mao Tse Tung a coat which now these days is really only worn by farmers if you, if you find it at all. So it's a kind of farmer's coat, but made out of um, the fabric um, that you see here that's used in the urban areas to screen off the construction sites of, of active um, building. Um, and behind, so behind that it's the building's filled with the floating population at work building the city. So you were already into this section. Oh, sorry. So the past 120 days is what Robert had started to, to talk about here.
2: Oh, and the, uh, this could have been... Oh, we're now standing on the roof of uh, Madame Young, who uh, comes in and cleans uh, our studio in the, in the morning and the uh, and the evening. And uh, Madam Young, we first met... Our first year in Di and she would come into the studio, a beautiful woman, and, and she would just go into the waste baskets and pick out uh, plastic bottles and uh, and cardboard, and this went on for for two months. And we, of course, got to know her and would wave. And and, and then, uh, this will sound funny, because it was funny to us, uh, peculiar. Uh, she felt guilty for doing this, and then. Uh, would actually empty the waste baskets. So we, we thought all this was really ridiculous and we said, you know, we turned to each other and said, you know, we, we just really have to pay her uh, to do this work. Uh, and and uh, so, so for the last four years, she's, or three years, she's been coming in and, uh, and uh, cleaning the floors and cleaning some other things uh, twice a day while we're there. Um, Beijing is incredibly uh, dusty from the desert coming in, so you have to dust everything <laughs> daily. Uh, coming back in uh, uh, May of this year, late April, Madame Yang and her husband had torn down their one-story set of buildings and were building a three-story complex of about 80 units. Uh, and this is when it's and it was started then, and now it's more now it's finished. Uh, and we said, you know, how, did, how does that work? How does she, how do they come up with the money to do that? Uh, so that, that's uh, maybe explained in a minute.
1: And then bumping into Ai Weiwei, he, he said something to us. He said, yeah, these days, Chaochengdi um, must be the fastest growing city in the world. Um, and it really, it, it seemed to appear that way. So basically, this landscape of a few years ago has now turned into uh, this landscape. So, what was causing the seeming agreement of some of the stakeholders in Chaochengdi to convert their one-story structures into three-story affairs, made up of a kind of uh, typical deal of three by five meter size rental rooms?
2: And this is a uh, just a sidebar here. Uh, these are some of the people that are doing the construction in Chaochengdi. They're they're not the villagers, but they're the migrant or the floating population, and they built their houses out of brick. But, it, but at zero cost because uh, they, they're, since they're not using mortar, they just pile the bricks on top of each other, put the roof on and live in it. Uh,
1: and this is a kind of sequence of a project that we did with the, the migrants where we said what, can we have the house actually migrate? We have an exhibition in Tianjin and can we um,
2: borrow the house borrow the it. house
1: and pay you for it and pay you to basically dismantle it, remantle it, dismantle it and take it back home again.
2: And the students at the architecture school were, uh, you know, this was unknown territory for them. This is something they didn't didn't know anything about, really. Uh, It seemed like it was important for them to know this. Um, uh, Piles of brick lined the streets before we left in late June, presumably ready to form the interior spaces, since by this time most of the structures were completed. And then two government edicts appeared uh, throughout Chao Chengdi, one describing that no reimbursement compensation would be made for any construction not completed before July 15th, and the other stating that Chao Chengdi and 15 other urban villages in the immediate area would be demolished within two years.
1: So, so here's a before. Here's Chao Chengdi and the village to the other side of the expressway. It was the first, it's the first to go? Um, Chaochengdi is slated to be the last to go, and so there's a whole flood of everyone from all of the other 14 villages now flooding into Chaochengdi. This is the after. Um, This took place uh, over the course of a few months.
2: Returning to Chaochengdi in late September with uh, some graduate and undergraduate students from SciArc in Los Angeles, to work on projects intended to help prevent the demolition of Chao Changdi, we made a thorough survey of the residential structures um, uh, that, turned, uh, that revealed that the number of teardowns and three-story rebuilds was actually clo- closer to 80%. So 80% of all the structures, one-story sort of residences in Chao Changdi are now three-story structures. And then we got some numbers from uh, some of the people, including Madam Yang, um, which helped to explain some things. Construction cost in Cha Changdi is about 100 yuan per square meter. Uh, th- and this part I'm not uh, completely sure of. Uh, thus, for a, a typical three-story building, uh, $15,000 is what's required. I think it's maybe closer to 25000 but somewhere in there. Rental for a three-by-five-meter uh, unit, which actually goes back to the rural village size of the house, uh, uh, or the, not the, the size modules. of the house but the module within the house uh, is anywhere from 300 to 500 yuan uh, per month. Uh, the total rental of a typical building with this number in mind uh, ends up being about $37,000 uh, a year per building. Uh, $37,000 to 50000 So Madam Young and her husband and their immediate family if they can rent out all 80 of these units will uh, earn this amount okay that is, uh, that's a good thing uh, but reimbursement and compensation for the property if the government were to take it is uh, at the rate of 10,000 to 15,000 yuan per square meter so Madam Yong's building in fact now is worth 1.4 million dollars uh, clearly a win-win situation for the farmers and urban villagers
1: and so there's a rumor whether they're building them to become land... Well, they, they, like you say, win-win. Either they're the landlords or they get the compens- compensation.
2: And in the village next door, Grand uh, Longjin, uh, the demolished village across the expressway, 600 families uh, from a reliable source, uh, a good friend of ours, bought new cars immediately after being compensated and not small cars. Finally, this powerful phenomena of self-built urban environments taking place today in Wealthier Urban Villages illustrates and confirms Robert Newworth's statement that these squatters mix more concrete than any developer. They lay more brick than any government. They have created a huge hidden economy, an unofficial system of squatter landlords and squatter tenants. The only difference in the Chinese cities is that the squatters are almost always official land lease holders. Most of these land lease holders in the villages of Beijing are former farmers who have the rights to the farmland and or houses in what used to be agriculture, people's communes, but are now urban areas. So these self-built urban communities, environments, have formed from a strange condition of publicly held but lent land, acted upon by individual and private entrepreneurship. This has produced a kind of space under the influence of a hybrid experiment that is part capitalism, part communist, and part socialist
1: and toward rural Lapolitanism. So as a wrap-up, we're proposing that the new environments that we've looked at tonight offer alternatives to known known planning methods and strategies and models. Um, Even with projects that have high ambitions to produce new alternatives, the restraints of large-scale planning seem to carry with them a homogenizing spatial baggage that seemed to prevent the existence of things like the 24-7 city, the inside-out city, the legal-illegal city, the unfinished city, and the heterotopic city. This is an urban experiment in Beijing that intentionally set out to produce a kind of heterotopic new city. Um, This is SoHo, or Small Office Home Office, Um, You can find it easily on the internet if you're you're interested in knowing more about it. The developers are Zhang Xin and Pan Xiyi of the Soho Development Group. And the New Yorker did a really amazing article on these two and sort of their ambitions in architecture and planning.
2: They're two of the most successful developers uh, in China. uh, but also certainly the most adventurous.
1: Yes, right. We have uh, a huge amount of respect for these two and their work in support of of good architecture, but there is a critique of this project and I think they have felt it themselves. Zhang and Pan envisioned a mix of tenants here that would use the spaces in different ways as houses, home offices, small businesses, or as design and art studios but it turns out that no one wanted to live, live there. No one wanted to live next to what might become um, a, something like a massage parlor or a Chinese restaurant, um, at least not in this kind of setting that was up in the air, um, minimalist, all-white surrounding. So nearly all of the spaces now, these days, um, have been taken over by um, a lot of design offices. Actually, a lot of really good architecture and design firms are occupying these, or else the spaces are vacant and they're sitting there just really as real estate um, investment properties. So this attempt to produce a heterotopic city um, didn't have the kind of street life and nightlife they'd hoped for, since uh, no one lives there. We're suggesting that we might look to the urban village, the urban village as it exists now, as we saw in Chaochengdi, and the rural village of the future, where we're seeing the hints of a, n- a new um, entrepreneurial, inventive landscape. Um, as well as to the new developing space and networks between those two, between the urban and rural, for means to expand our understanding of planning for human habitation by recognizing the conditions out of which they grew. Could we as architects, planners, economists, and as conscious designers consider accepting that, for instance, the loss of publicness of public space in contemporary urbanism perhaps requires a loosening up of the need to draw such absolute distinctions between the two and an openness to allowing for slippages Simultaneities and overlaps of the two.
2: Can we imagine living environments that are less spatially fixed but uh, th- uh, that allow for and accommodate, quote, floating that is, allow for human migrations at many spatial and temporal scales?
1: Could we consider hybrid experiments involving combinations of at- official top down support and thinking with um, bottom up action?
2: Can we consider the design? That design might produce a dynamic environment that is never finished. Uh, When we're finished, we seem to be in the ground, uh, so why would we want our cities to be finished? That is ever open and adaptable with the built-in ability to adjust to changing conditions.
1: Could we consider an openness to an environment that is neither purely urban nor rural, and certainly not suburban, but one that we might imagine as rural-apolitan?
2: The urban, the urban villages are like Umberto Eco's open work, in which there are deliberate loose ends that allow the public to step in. For Eco, the open work provides the possibility for elements of multiplicity and plurality, and it produces a more interactive process between the reader and the text, or in this case, between the urbanite and the city.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Robert Manguri and Marianne Ray. Um, just to announce that the next stage of the evening is a drinks reception, which will be served up, um, as, as you will know, on the eighth floor of this building, so we need to take the lifts up the top. It is an opportunity for people both to return the um, Hermes handbag copy, uh, where that ended up, and also to continue the discussion with our guests tonight um, and to, to see the book that, that emerges from their work on cha chan Thank you all for your attendance.
2: Thank <laughs> you.